In this week's episode, we are lifting the lid on common mistakes and mishaps that can come about when you are writing your first memoir. We're going to cover so many things in this episode, guys, from how to handle writing about family members to how to make sure your story is interesting and even how to handle feedback once your book is out in the world. There is so much to cover this week, so let's jump straight in. If you're trying to promote your brand but stuck finding the right words, this is the podcast for you. Get your weekly inspiration on all things storytelling, creativity, branding, and so much more. I share inspiring stories as well as tips and tricks on how to make your words work out in the world. And if you like free stuff, I've got you covered there too. Head to therightremark.com to steal my marketing secrets. You're listening to The Right Remark Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Right Remark podcast, guys. You're listening to episode eight and I'm your host, Vanessa Barrington. This week, I am going to be talking to a top Queensland author and a very good mate of mine, Dr. Sally Breen. Sally has worked the full spectrum of all the things when it comes to creative writing. She's a writer herself. She's published. She had a two book deal with HarperCollins. She currently teaches as a senior lecturer in creative writing at Griffith University. She sits as an executive director of Asia Pacific Writers and Translators. And she's also worked in the editorial space with the Griffith Review publication. So she definitely knows her stuff when it comes to writing. And I've brought her on today to talk to us about how to avoid all those common pitfalls and mishaps when it comes to writing a memoir, which can be an absolutely tricky space. And she's going to share a little bit of insight around her own work, as well as some of the things that she sees that her own students face into, and also some of the things that she's had to navigate in her own creative process. So now before I introduce you to this woman, I need to tell you a little bit about her background. So Sally is the author of The Casuals, which was released in 2011. It's a fantastic book about growing up in the 90s. The book won the Varuna HarperCollins Manuscript Prize And her second book, Atomic City, which is based on the Gold Coast, was shortlisted for the People's Choice Book of the Year category in the Queensland Literary Awards. So, fantastic accolades. Sally's uh, short-form creative and non-fiction work has been published widely around the world. She's featured in many top publications, including The Guardian, The Age, The Conversation, Griffith Review, and The Asia Literary Review. So before I introduce Sally, I just wanted to ask if you haven't already, please do hit that subscribe button on your Apple Podcasts app. And also, if you've got a couple of seconds to rate this episode once you finish listening, I'd be super appreciative. Sally, welcome to the show. Hi, Vanessa. Thanks for coming on. Um, Look, I'm so keen to chat to you today about your process and what you do for your work and everything. Can we get straight into it though? I want to chat a bit about the fact that you teach people how to write for a living. Well, we do our best. (laughs) What do you love most about your job as a lecturer? Well, considering we're at the end of trimester, perhaps not a good time to ask me, but, you know, you feel the pressure right at the end. But I do have to say it's the feedback I get from people who've gone through that process, you know, that journey. Some of them, you know, we may have come to blows at certain times during the trimester, but uh, we get there in the end and just to see how much they 
eventually realise and come around to some very key specifics about writing. I mean, there's a lot of debate that emerges, you know, every year about can you teach creativity? Can you teach creative writing? And to me, that's sort of the wrong question, you know. I mean, you can't deliver talent, but you can certainly improve writing and you can certainly give people a lot of tools to make their writing better. I mean, it's a craft. And just like any other craft, you don't expect someone to be able to make an incredible sculpture without any kind of learning or process. Or And for some reason, people seem to think that creative writing just descends into people's minds from some sort of holy spiritual place and that it's got nothing to do with learning or education and it's just not true you know we can't teach people how to think but we can teach them how to tap into their voice and make it stronger make it better and when I see students getting that and understanding that process that's what I really love about it and I also really like being around young people discovering their creativity that to me is exciting and it it energizes mine. So I'd say that that's probably the part I love the most. And the part I love the least is paperwork. (laughs) I think I I don't know a writer that isn't terrible at admin. I was just saying to someone this morning, I am so crap at admin and paperwork. (laughs) Creatives don't really (laughs) like that. (laughs) Well, it's so boring. You know, a spreadsheet is not the most exciting thing but yeah so we've just finished for this trimester and uh, had some wonderful work. In your view what's the biggest thing that you see writing students struggling with? Sure at the moment particularly these days I see them struggling with the, the difference between what I call high concept and story and a concept is not a story it's a framework and I think given the amount of time or how much screen time dominates how we consume culture these days, what we let fly on TV or in film just doesn't work on the page. You've got no visual bells and whistles, no soundtrack, no technological stuff to distract you from a bad script or from poor writing. You know, all you have are words and those words better be good. You know, a concept with Hollywood style twists and turns, you know, it really doesn't translate into fiction or creative nonfiction. So in screen-based media, we often don't notice or we forgive it. You know, we forgive bad characterization, poor dialogue, questionable motivation, because we're distracted by the visual play. In creative writing, you can't rely on that. You have to bring it to life in the imagination of the reader and you have to make them believe it. And so I often get students who watch far too much Netflix and Stan and and what have you, and their cultural consumption is very screen-based. And so I have to switch their thinking from screen-based concepts to creative writing-based concepts and stories. And often that, it's a big jump. You know, we'll be in writing class and you'll mention a television show or, or a film, and often I do teach genre particularly in relation to film and tv because of course they they're symbiotic and they go together but they're just obsessed with television and film you know they can go on for 40 minutes about this stuff and I say yeah yeah, yeah, but what about the book did you know that it's from a book you know nearly everything that's out there is adapted from a text you know and Mm. and they just 
reach for the screen too often and uh, it's a different it's a different manner of creation and so they have to wrap their head around that what are some of the tips that you give those students for getting over that and for structuring a good narrative taking that big bold Mm. concept well again and again and it doesn't matter what course I'm in I talk about this idea of the difference between micro and macro so micro is the detail of the story and the macro is the intent so I think that all good creative writing is operating on more than one level, so more than just the surface level of plot. And even if that's very good and it's really sensorial and engaging, stories need another level, that allegorical position to have power. So there's a difference between what the story is about and what you want to say as a writer. What you want to say is not a plot. What you want to say is at the macro level, so it's kind of sitting above. And I've done a lot of research on this over the years and many, many writers and many, many critics and editors all talk about this and they might call it different things. They might not call it micro and macro. They might talk about it as two stories calling and answering each other, allegory, symbolism. But it is that idea that what you want to say at the macro level relates to meaning and purpose. And it doesn't have to be a kind of, Dostoevsky level (laughs) philosophy but you you have to have something to say and if you don't know what it is that you want to say at a macro level and that's what I have to continually point them towards okay yeah I know what your story is about in terms of what happens the plot but what are you trying to say with that what's the point of this story you know and thinking about it consciously as a writer while you're writing the story that that call and answer between the plot and the meaning is happening all the way through and it helps guide your decisions. And so sometimes I share an example when I was a lot younger and I was writing a story about San Francisco and it was set at the top of a tower where a friend of mine was working for a woman who was dying. My friend had a young baby. She was trying to you know, pump her breast to get the milk out. This is a story about mothers and daughters and about women as friends. And I showed it to a friend of mine, a writer, and, and there's a point at which my friend has to make soup for the old lady. And my writer friend said to me, the soup should be milky, yeah, so that everything comes back to mother's milk. And that's related to macro. Now, a reader might not see that, might not make that connection, but they're in there. The motifs all relate to the macro. You know, if I'd made it chicken noodle soup, doesn't have the same power as it has when the story opens and she's, there's all this breast milk that gets spilt on the floor. And then there's the soup, which the old lady doesn't want and it gets thrown in the sink and it's all gluggy and milky. So these connections are all related to the macro. And when you are aware of this as a writer, you're making decisions that link up and symbolise the macro all the time. And that's what gives the writing a greater resonance, I think, because the writer's in charge of those connections and symbolism. And that, that gives it a lot of power. And I think those subtle motifs and that sort of thing as well. But I find it so interesting, Sal, you know, a lot of the people that have come to me for help with their books Mm. and are aspiring writers are 
they want to write their own story. So memoir, yeah. you know, and this is something that when you talk about that macro and the micro, and I often see this as yeah. an issue of I want to write a story about my life because something mm. bad happened or this happened and I overcame mm. that. But that And people will so just like it because they think people will just like it because of that release from traumatic experience or, you know, whatever the story is. But, again, it's not enough. Not understanding the difference between your story and a universal connection. So the personal, the universal, the micro, the macro, you know, it's got to be doing that all the time. You know, otherwise it's like then this happened, then this happened, this one time at band camp, you know, and no one <laughs> actually cares. Yeah, 100%. You know? And how you get away from that just because you had an experience, it, it, you know, that that's not enough. It's not enough. What is that bigger message that you want to tell? And that's something I've, you know, there's been some incredible examples that I've seen with that with clients where they don't actually know that they're, for example, making a statement about the medical industry. Yes, they that's thought right. they're just writing a story about a trauma, but they actually are. They've got something to say about that. So, in your mind, you know, I often say when you're writing, and I absolutely did this. I, th- I don't know a writer that doesn't do this. You start with yourself. You start with writing mm. about yourself. And I think that's why a lot of the people that come to me the first time aspiring writers are writing a memoir. What are some mm. of the common issues that you see with the memoir genre for writers? Well, I think, again, it's having the ability to uh, analyse your story from a higher level. So you need to step back from your actual micro level story. Sometimes that's difficult for people, obviously, because of things they've gone through. And I also see a lot of hesitation related to revealing things about other people in their lives. And that is an understandable dilemma. But the problem is, if you're not willing to go there, you don't have a book. So, Mm. you know, I see a lot of people who want to write these stories, but they're just hesitating and holding back and hesitating. And I think, oh, this book's never going to come out the way it should come out because they're frightened. And so if you are frightened to say what you really need to say, then memoir's not for you. I mean, look <laughs> look at Frank McCourt. Look at all the brilliant memoirs. That It's because they did not hold back. And the thing mm. is, if you hold back and you're worried about your mum or your brother or your auntie or, you know, what have you, look, get the book out first, you know, you've got to write the damn thing first, then it's got to go get a publisher, then it's got to go through legal and they'll deal with those issues, you know. The, the casuals legal report ran to 30 pages, you know. <laughs> I really f***ed the lawyers off. But, um, you know, they were fantastic. <laughs> they said, look, this is a red flag, this is a red flag, this is a red flag and we went through them meticulously and people don't understand this process and I didn't at the time. And I, you know, with the editor and the lawyers, they said there were various processes I had to go through because I'd mentioned some people, not by name, I had used the term rock star, but there were certain people in the book which um, the lawyers had identified as red flags, meaning if they were not in contact with you and they did not respond to contact, it meant that they were still pissed off with you, likely, and that they would go you on publication. Mm. So we had to change things and to my mind that was a compromise as a writer I was like but it's not real it's not the truth that you know he he was this he was that you know and they're like yeah but 
do you want to lose your house over this book because it can happen right mm, so then I had to think about okay so and I didn't really believe them and then they sent me a list of writers and artists who'd been sued in Australia and I was like whoa <laughs> okay yeah, and most it does of them happen and most of them lost so and then you know I'm completely fine with it now because what was changed was minute detail so that the person could not be identified by someone else so that really taught me a lesson but the thing was if I'd been worried about that while I was writing it it would have driven me crazy you know and so this is what I say to people just forget it just write the story changes can be made later if you hesitate and you leave stuff out it's going to be boring it's not going to have the guts and the power that it needs you can deal with this stuff later and you know half that section might not even be in the final book anyway just just get the thing out first deal with the legals mm. later you know because otherwise such a good point yeah otherwise what's the point you know i mean a lot of people want to write their story but if you're that worried and if you if you're not willing to take a risk then don't put your life on the page i mean it's that simple and it is really people think i think they underestimate it on one hand and overestimate it on the other so when it does come out there's a lot of stuff that you have to deal with and unexpected reactions especially if your book does well and that can be quite confronting so you need to think it through if if you don't want to put your life out there for public consumption then don't do it you know and and write something else mm, yeah um i think too many people you know the, the hesitancy is probably a sign yeah but also I think your point about saying get it out on the damn page and then come back to it is so true as well because so oftentimes you can make those adjustments that is at your discretion. You can put a disclaimer in, you can change the names or change the location and still get that message That's or the right. point of what you were trying to say across. It's so, yeah, it's really. You know, and I, I understand that some people's families are not, very supportive I mean I'm I'm lucky that I had a very supportive family um, with the casuals and I understand that but that would probably mean that you might not put the book out there I mean if it would mean the loss of some family or familial connection then is it worth it you know and so that's a question only the writer can answer if it may damage irrevocably your relationships with family then yeah but also some people think that family members are going to react in a certain way and they don't. In fact, mm. in my experience, if you don't have a conversation about it, you're making assumptions on how people will react. And in my experience, most people actually love being written about. And someone that you think is going to be really mad or angry is often the one that's waving the book around at the book launch. <laughs> and. <laughs> And, and has nine copies on the coffee table at their house, you know, and it's the people that you thought were going to be cool that might send you an email and say, hey, you know, I didn't like that or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so if you make assumptions, so I think it's worth having a conversation. I spoke to my brother and I spoke to my mother several times in the, in the writing of the casuals and they were fine. They said, no, nah, we don't want to read it, you know, just go ahead and then they did read it before it was published so yeah it's really a the memoir is an interesting territory 
how do you stay productive when you're writing? And I know, you know, we've been friends for a number of years now and I, I do very clearly recall the discipline that you had yeah. back when I was at uni <laughs> around your writing and carving out your writing time. How do you stay productive when you're writing a book? Yeah, it's really tough for all of us, I think, to find that space and especially most writers in Australia have another career. And for me, I don't lack the motivation, I lack time. And so it's my job and all the other things I'm involved in that often get in the way. So sometimes I have to continually start to shave off some of those other things I'm involved in. And yeah, you just have to stay disciplined in that whole idea of getting to the desk you know if you don't get to the desk it doesn't happen but I'm conscious too though that you percolate a lot you know and I think that it's constantly with me so I'm thinking about it you know when I'm in a cafe or I'm I'm dreaming about it or whatever you know I'm constantly connecting to the book to think about it and it's trying to eliminate distractions. So one of the key things I do is that when I feel like I'm in a space where I can write a lot of content and not just map it out and think about it, I often go away if I can, you know, like even if it's only for four or five days, I'll go somewhere where I can actually, you know, take leave or turn the email off, go to a house that I don't care about cleaning, buy all the food I need and just work and just work all day and into the evening and just really push stuff out. And I found that really works well for me. Travel, just being in a different space and traveling works really well for me. But everyone's different with this, you know, whatever you need to do. And I also don't have a schedule, but I do know that I have to check in with it. So if I can't sleep, I sometimes get up, you know, it might be 1am, I'll get up and I'll get the notebooks out, maybe not the computer, maybe just the notebook so it's more free form and I'll just write whatever's in my brain and not allowing me to sleep. And it doesn't matter that I'm up till three, you know, I'll just deal with it. So trusting that impulse, you know, when it comes, I've got like hundreds of notes on my phone now. I try and when I have a thought or an idea, I try and write it down all the time because you think you're going to remember it and you don't. And so I think it's that, it's being disciplined with the thinking and the note-taking and, you know, and I've seen other writers do that and how they, I remember Frank Morehouse had a whole suitcase full of, you know, those little cards and he used to write on them, like palm cards. Like the speak of palm cards. Yeah, 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 speak of palm (laughs) cards. And he goes, here's my new book, you know. (laughs) It's it's just all these cards in a suitcase, you know. Um, So, yeah, I think, and and that process is kind of fun as well. Yeah, absolutely. And just getting it all out and then worrying about how it's going to stitch together at the end as well. That's I think right. we yeah. can get really stuck on that. Or it being perfect on the page, you know, don't worry about it being perfect. Oh, 100%. Turn the editor off. Yeah. <laughs> Sal, where do you get your ideas for story? So much of how you write is so connected in reality and mm. there's often a very strong cultural thread through your work. Where do you yeah. get your ideas from? I think I'm like a sponge and a lot of people have said to me, I can't believe you wrote, like I'll be out with them somewhere or whatever and they say, I can't believe you wrote a story about this, you know, like, you know, I thought we were just, you know, having wines or something, you know. But I think it's because wherever I am I'm watching and I'm absorbing. So I get stories from, you know, crazy nights out, conversations, 
travel all the time, travel, you know, bad decisions made while traveling, you know, just everything that happens, being really aware of it. You know, even if you are in the midst of this crazy adventurous party, you are watching and observing what's going on. And I think I'm a bit like that wherever I am. You know, if I'm on public transport, if I'm walking around the city late, you know, I'll be watching stuff, I'll take stuff in. I also take a lot of inspiration from news feeds, from, you know, just absorbing what's in or some random article I'll read on Facebook. There'll be something in it that I'll go, ah, no, you know, I'll take a note from that. And actually my next book idea came from a news story and it was about those kids that they call it the house of horrors and it was about those kids that were discovered in that house in America. It was about 12 kids, I think, and they'd never been to school. You know, it was just an incredibly awful situation. But what struck me about it, because we hear these stories, but what struck me about it is that one of the children kept a diary and I thought, man, I want to get that diary. And I don't know whether that's even possible. I know the parents have gone to jail, they've been prosecuted. But I thought I, as in a non-fiction story, I mean, I would really, obviously I'm, I'm aware of not exploiting those children, but I think the young person who kept the diary is 17 now. I just, it's a story that's never left me. And the idea of perhaps as a non-fiction piece, if I could meet this young person and we could utilise that diary in some way. I mean, I just don't even know if it's possible. But you see how it begins, you know, this story. Um, and non-fiction mm. is so, it's a form that I really am increasingly working in more. So those ideas come to you in different ways than the creative stuff. It's all creative, but, the, you know, the fiction comes from, I think, a more ephemeral place sometimes, Yeah. I have to say, Sal, I just had this memory come back to me (laughs) from years ago that I want to talk about Yeah, and I hadn't planned to talk about, but it's about when you went to Dubai. Uh, Oh, yeah. (laughs) So when you're writing nonfiction and you're worried about what other people are going to think, let's talk about that. That was big. Yeah, that was epic. So that was pre-financial crisis, which was 2008, wasn't it? And so Dubai was, you know, just in its absolute spectacle pursuit no holes barred and yeah I wrote I was commissioned to write an extended essay on the labor conditions there and yeah I mean I know I was threatened I was literally threatened I was told in no uncertain terms you know if you print this you'll never be allowed back in the country and I was like well that's fine with me because I didn't want to come back Um, and you know it was a really confronting experience on many levels the western complicity in that project something people don't really obviously the emiratis and their and their own latent racism towards other cultures and their exploitation of people from uh, the asian subcontinent it was pretty confronting uh, the way that they dealt with me as a freelance writer young woman yeah i found the whole thing really confronting environmentally it's a disaster you know but here we are in Dubai with all these westerners either on holidays or working there for these enormous salaries with their Gucci handbags and they're hanging around with 
Emirati princes and, you know, they're loving it. And so the whole, the whole thing was quite strange, the Western hypocrisy, which, of course, they bring up and it's true. Um, there's a lot of Australian companies making a lot of money there. But you have to go there if you're going to get that story, you know. And I had to work very hard on this guy that I met in a bar. That's good advice. Always hang out in bars. Um, so <laughs> that's how I got into the labour camps because otherwise I wouldn't have got in there. And, you know, he ended up being really pivotal to the story. So he was a safety officer in Dubai. And he took me to the camps in the middle of the night and, um yeah, that was that was really devastating experience to be in the labor camp and see how those people were living. And he warned me as well. He said, you, you, if you're going to go here, like, and obviously we know that in a place like Saudi Arabia, which is even worse, you know, I could have been disappeared. So I was a, in a sense maybe a bit gung-ho um, looking back. But, yeah, I got away with it, so... You've committed to the story, that's for yeah. sure. I remember when you came back and where did that publish again, that essay? It was, was with the Griffith you? Review and it's in that's an edition right. called Cities on the Edge, yeah, which yeah. It, it can I, be read on their website. I remember being quite nervous for you about that though <laughs> and have you been back to Dubai? Yeah, but it was only a stopover and obviously I didn't go through customs so that was cool. Um, <laughs> so, But I don't think I'll be getting through customs, yeah. But it's been yeah. a while now, so maybe maybe they just keep these records for 10 years or so, I don't know. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I haven't continued to write about Dubai, so. What's some of the harshest feedback that you've ever received? I mean, as writers, mm. we get it, right? You've got to take it on the chin sometimes and sometimes feedback yeah. hits harder than, than other times. Do you for have sure. any sort of insight that you'd like to share? Yeah, for sure. It's got to be the Sydney Morning Herald cartoon of me which came out after The Casuals was published. I was very happy for the review there, but they <laughs> commissioned this cartoonist to do this piece of me, which is me looking like a very kind of bogan Sophie Lee or something like that, in a pool on a pool pony with wine bottles and rum bottles all in the pool and me wearing big hoop earrings, basically just... Wow, that's pretty harsh. Yeah, really taking me down for being working class. And um, I yeah. saw this and I actually people had started texting me saying, you've got to see this cartoon of you that's in the Sydney Morning Herald. And I was like, oh, God, here we go. And, you know, I found it. I actually just burst out laughing. I thought it was really great. And I was like, I've never worn hoop earrings, you know. Um, but anyway, <laughs> it's not a hoop earring in the whole book. But, um, of course, those cliches. So, anyway, I rang them up and uh, I said to the editor, who was very, very squirming around, you know, he really didn't want to talk to me. And I said, well, you know, thanks for the review, by the way, and um, which was actually quite good. But the picture, and he was, like, silent, you know, didn't really know what to say. And I said, I love it. I love it. Um, you, do you think the cartoonist would send me a digital copy so that I can get it blown up and put on my wall? And <laughs> he just didn't know how to take me, you know. I think he was a bit worried. And he never got back to me, unfortunately, because um, I'd love to have it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, the literary establishment can be pretty unforgiving if you're I don't know, some working class kid from Queensland and I've always wanted to tear it down a little bit and 
that hasn't done me any favors or and now I'm less bullshit about it and um but that snobbery still bothers me and it does still exist we don't talk about that class distinction enough in Australia but yeah I've had I've had other stuff but I really do like criticism from editors uh having been an editor myself now I really really respect it and I listen to it and I love that working process of working with an editor Obviously, you want an editor that's going to word it or frame it in a certain way that doesn't, you know, upset you or get your back up. But I really love that process because an editor is sitting in for readers, you know, and if they've noticed something that's missing or not quite right, it's it's on the money, you know, and you should listen to it and not not be precious about it. So I, I love that that process. Mm, it's so crucial, isn't it, to be able to progress a piece of work. Yeah. And what about, you know, prior to that stage of handing a piece of work over to an editor, presumably you have a crack at chopping your own work up. Yeah. What does that process look like for you? Do you have any insight there for people how they can create a bit of distance from the work? When I left QUT, I was working at QUT for a time and I went to work for the Griffith Review, which is, you know, one of the best things that I ever did and working for Julianne Schultz taught me so much about editorial and I think prior to that, I was kind of winging it, especially in relation to my own work. I could see uh, flaws in other people's work. And I guess I was instinctually listening to the music of sentences and, and I was quite naturally good at editing. But now that I've worked as an editor, I can just edit anything. It's like I'm the Terminator, you know. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I just can hear it straight away and I can do it really fast. So if any writers can do an editing course or learn from someone that's a professional, then it, it's never going to do you any harm. But, you know, the, the, the things that are always coming up, whether it's student work or anything else, is um, conjunctions. People use far too many of them. So these are words that link words to other words, words like that which was but as is. Irrelevant words. Oh. I like to call them. I hate oh. them. <laughs> Get rid of them, and especially it and as. As should just be banned. I mean, someone should just get rid of it, you know. Um, And English has got so many of these conjunctions. And so I say move the subject to the front of the sentence and then you won't have this big lead up with all these irrelevant words, as you say. Personification, I mean, students do this stuff really badly, like, you know, my eyes wander around the room, you know. (laughs) it's just really you know no they're not they're not people they don't have legs they're not you know so this kind of personification of emotion as well so my sadness fell down on me it's like no it it, it didn't really fall on you um and it's not about (laughs) literalness it's about being aware that that just doesn't ring true or right you know personification can be great but it just it can be really poor um, redundancy so when people say things in three sentences they say the same thing three times just in different ways or things that are implied by the scene itself that they then over explain I mean it doesn't mm. even need to be there so for example um, one that I use is I stared at the cheap carpet of the holiday inn where I was staying and it's like well if you're in a holiday inn you we know you're staying there. there. <laughs> you, know, you don't just go there to hang out, you know. So yeah. looking really closely at what you're saying and is this redundant? Do I need to say this? Can I cut this phrase or this line? And also uh, cliches, of course. 
And I even had a student say to me this trimester, but you know, cliches can be really good. And I thought, okay, all right. Perhaps, you know, what if it's the character? What if it's the way they talk? And I'm like, oh, geez. Um, look, <laughs> yes, maybe, but I think it's about going for really striking images and that the more striking the image, your first go at an image or explaining something is probably fine. But what if you pushed it? What if you pushed it just a little bit more? Because we all reach for the things that, because we've got a lot of language that's written on us, so we reach for things we've heard before, like, you mm, know. Familiarity. Chill. Yeah, 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 chill to the bone. Whereas, you and you know from kids, kids don't have that. So they come up with the weirdest things. Yeah, they do. Because <clears throat> they have no filter, <laughs> you know, and they go, they'll come up with an amazing image. And, you know, I often teaching like five or six-year-olds, which I used to do more than I do now, but used to do workshops and stuff. Oh, they blow me away compared to my uni students who will go for the average image. It comes back to the whole Netflix uh, culture though, doesn't it, where, you know, if you're consuming a lot of pop culture, yeah, it's easy to kind of revert to the familiarity rather than looking at something in a different way to consider how you might say it if you were looking at it for the first time. Yeah, you know, and I often tell this story about this kid who, I, I think he was about seven, and I said, you know, when your heart's racing and you're scared, you don't just say, my heart was racing. Can you think of something that sounds like or feels like your heart's racing? And, you know, he thought about it for a while, and um, God love him. He said, um, my heart was going off like popcorn in a bag. Mm. you know I mean yeah. I was like oh my god kid that's I love amazing that. yeah. yeah I love that that's so and it's it's exactly how it feels right when your yeah. heart is so he is really hammering. thought about it <laughs> he really thought about it and he's like what is it like you know <laughs> instead of just saying my heart's racing you know which is easy but what does it really feel like and that's so much more sensorial and alive well those are great tips Sal thank you for sharing oh you're all welcome of that <laughs> yes. could go on and on babe I just wanted to say that I meet people every year who want to pursue their art you know and they often say it like that my art and I think not many do in the end and I know that there are all sorts of factors and reasons to do with that but oftentimes it's the individual that's getting in the way the most and they're often miserable inside or in some part of themselves because they're not engaging with that creativity in that space. And I hear a lot of people talk about it, but I don't see a lot of people chase it. And I think it requires chasing. It requires dedication and hard work. But if you really talk about it that much and you love it that much, you've got to make it happen. You know, so no one's going to come and find you. You know, you've got to chase it. And I see a lot of people who just kind of stop or fade away, you know, and they might emerge 10 years later and email me or message me on LinkedIn and say, oh, my God, I hate my life or, <laughs> and, or they love it, you know, it doesn't matter. But it's that whole idea of if you want this in your life, you have to chase it, you know, you have to make room. And I think that if people sort of were more, a little more honest about that, then they would make it happen. There's a great doco on Stan called, now I'm advocating watching 
<laughs> stand, but anyway. But it's called The Art Life and it's about David Lynch. And you probably have to be a bit of a fan to get, it's a little slow. But what it's about is I really admire him because he never compromised, you know, and I think that's a real luxury. Most of us have to, you know, work to try and live our creative or artistic life and hopefully that work is connected to that life. But David Lynch, I think he had one job, you know, and he's just managed to live the art life is just what he refers to it as. But he is very honest about the fact that there's a moment where he says, you know, if that scholarship hadn't come in from the American Film Institute, I think it was, he said, I don't know what would have happened. And he says it with such gravity that you think, because he was married and he had two kids um, to his first wife, and you just sort of get the sense that he thought he might have gone a bit psycho if he, if he hadn't, yeah. have, hadn't have had that lifeline. I love that. I'm going to have to check that out yes. too. I haven't seen that one. Yeah, the art life. Cool. Sal, thanks so much for coming on to chat to me today. I know there's so many people that will listen to this and go, oh, my God, and they will take something from this conversation, if not many things. So thank you thanks for your for time. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Let's do it again. Yeah, 100% <laughs> we will. <laughs> well, there you have it, folks. Very, very inspiring discussion with Dr. Sally Brain. Now, if you haven't already, please make sure you check out her two novels, The Casuals and also Atomic City, fantastic books. And also do keep an eye out for some of her work, as she mentioned, that's um, going to be published over the coming year. Now, if you're not already on my mailing list, please make sure you jump on over to therightremark.com and sign up. Now, I don't do spammy emails, guys, but I've got to tell you, if you are looking to write a book, this is going to be the perfect way to stay connected as I have got some very, very special coaching offers coming up in the next few weeks. So stay tuned for that. Finally, if you've enjoyed today's episode, please take a couple of minutes to rate, review and share it with your friends via your Apple Podcasts app or whatever app you like to use. Thanks, guys, for tuning in and I'm looking forward to seeing you next week. Yeah.